We're picking up in the eighth verse of chapter four. As we pick up in verse eight and go on through, through verse 20, it's verse 19 that I really want to focus on today where Paul there speaks of the, the fact that he's laboring again um, for them until Christ is formed in them. And so that's where we're ultimately headed today. But um, just real quickly, as we think about the verses that we just read together, you see in these verses that Paul, he moves from instructing them as a teacher to uh, appealing to them as a, both a friend and, and then really as a father. And, and so you see in these verses, it's very personal. You see Paul's heart for the Galatians. And what, what comes through is his genuine love for them. So Paul really loved them. He had a, a real pastor's heart for them. He cared about them uh, as people. They weren't just, uh, you know, for him, they, they were not a means to the end of his uh, ambitions that was really the case with the false teachers. The false teachers' interest in the Galatians really was uh, very um, selfish. They, they, they only cared about what the Galatians could do for their popularity. That's, that's pretty much what it was. And Paul, Paul says that in the verses that we read there. And, um, but you see in these verses as he's going back and he's reminding them of the time that he spent with them you, you just see this beautiful heart that, that comes through, a true pastor's heart. And so we wanna look um, at what that looks like, especially as he refers to the fact that he's laboring for them. But, but let's just walk real quickly uh, through uh, verses uh, eight through 18, and then we'll come and we'll spend most of our time on verse 19. So in verse eight, he says, but then, referring back to their uh, previous state before they came to faith in Christ, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So Paul's just saying, how is it that you, you know, now that you've come to know God, and more importantly, God, God knows you, uh, and you, you've entered into this beautiful relationship, how is it that you're returning to these things? He refers to them as the weak and the beggarly elements. Now, the Galatians, remember, were not formerly Jews. They were Gentiles. Uh, and, but in their, in their own experience, they would have been idolaters. They would have been the, the worshipers of false gods. And in that worship, they would have engaged in observing days and months and seasons and years and different festivals and things like that. You could even think of uh, something like astrology. It's all based on you know, the, the stars, the heavens and so forth. 
So that's, that's what they would have been doing. And, and now Paul actually says that in, in embracing Judaism at this point, you're, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're returning to those same kinds of things. Because at this point in history, of course, uh, Judaism is, is gutted of, of its uh, former uh, spiritual content. It, it, of course, did have uh, spiritual content from God that was relevant for the time. But once Jesus came, that was all done away with. So now all that's left is the, the shell, the observance of these different things. So Paul says to the Galatians, in embracing Judaism, you're essentially just going back to what you had before, just under another name. You're worshiping um, these, uh, you know, observing the days, the months, the seasons, and the years. And he says, I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. So at this point, Paul is just concerned that maybe all of his efforts toward them in the end would prove to be in vain, that they really didn't uh, embrace Christ as they seemed to have uh, when he was among them. So he says, as he goes on, he says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Now, remember, Paul is, his background is being not just a Jew, but his background is being like the Jew's Jew. He's like the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's the guy who, his background is complete and total devotion to the law. But when he comes to them, he doesn't come with any of that. He's left all of that behind. He comes to them free in Christ. So that's what he's saying to them. He's saying, look, I became like you. I, I came with this freedom. And this is what I originally introduced to you. And so he's pleading with them to uh, basically to um, re-embrace what they formerly had. And then he says, for uh, you have not injured me at all. Now, he's, he's referring back to his experience among them. And he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. <clears throat> So you see, he's just reminding them of the experience that they'd had together. And he's describing it as, as one where they embraced him totally. Even though he came there and during his time there, he was physically afflicted with something. But that wasn't a deterrent to them and their embracing of him. He says, you, you even embraced me in that situation. You even accepted me like I was an angel or, or like I was even Jesus. And your affection was so deep toward me that if it were possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And so what happened? That, that's really what he's saying. What, what happened? He's wanting them to remember back to the, the sweetness of the relationship that they formerly had. What happened? What has changed? But then he says this in verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
So that's what's happened. Paul is not going along with their new perspective. He's not only not going along with it, he's telling them, that, no, you're, what you're embracing is false. And so that's the thing that's caused the tension. These false teachers have come in and duped them and they've embraced that and Paul is pushing back on them and so this is where the tension has arisen. And so he says regarding the false teachers, he said, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. So Paul strikes at the root of what was going on with these false teachers. They wanted the Galatians to be sort of a notch on their belt. They, their interest in the Galatians was purely self-centered. They wanted to be able to say, oh yeah, we've got this group of folks over there in Galatia that are following our way. So it was all about their own ego. It was all about um, their own selfish ambitions. That's what they were doing. And, and so Paul just nails it here where he tells them very straightforwardly that they really want you to be zealous for them. That's why they're treating you the way they are. That's why they're flattering you. That's why they're uh, making you feel so special and so important. So you will in turn give them that same attention and that will be a boost for their egos. And so he says, it, you know, it's good to be zealous and a good thing, but the point is this, this isn't a good thing. But then in verse 19, my children, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. So Paul is wanting them to know that, look, you know, this is not anger that is driving him. This is genuine concern. Now his tone has been rather firm. And of course, we saw that when he referred to them as foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. So his tone's been rather firm, but he's saying, listen, I pretty much what he's trying to express here is like, if you could hear the tone of my voice, if you, if you knew my heart, I'm not, this isn't out of anger. This is out of deep concern. I wish I was with you so you could, you could hear my tone. And from that point on, he's going to go on once again, and he's going to explain to them the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's going to use a brilliant illustration from uh, the story of Abraham and uh, Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael and all of that back in Genesis. So that he's going to show how that, that historical event actually illustrates the, the two covenants. So we'll come to that next time. But I want to focus in on mainly two things here. First of all, just the whole picture of Christ in you or Christ being formed in you. And then secondly, how Paul says that he's laboring in birth again until Christ is formed in them. So when we think about this idea of Christ being formed in you, this is really what it is to be a Christian. Paul, in writing to the Colossians, he says this, he says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So when we talk about being a Christian, what we're talking about 
is literally having Christ dwelling in us. That's what a Christian is. And we need to state that. It needs to be said repeatedly in our day because we still live in an environment where many people think that a Christian is something other than that, or they, they don't see that as necessarily the, the primary definition of being a Christian. A lot of people still think of being a Christian in terms of just either uh, being part of a denomination or attending a church service or of um, being a, a good person. Those, those are the things that, that people still hold on to. I mean, if you, if you just think out into just sort of the general public or you think of into the realm of, you know, the celebrities or the politicians or whatever, you know, how often do we hear that so-and-so is a Christian? Or, or they would even say for themselves, well, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but I understand that they're not, and I'm not going to put my views on anybody. You know, I hear people say stuff like that all the time. Well, if you were to ask them, well, what does that mean that you're a Christian? They would probably say something like, well, you know, I'm a whatever. You know, they would, they would refer to some denomination or they would say something like, they, well, I attend a, a you know, church fairly regularly or I just do my best to be a good person. How many of them would say, well, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. That, that Jesus Christ is dwelling in me. That, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying that I'm a Christian. You're not going to hear that. That's not what's going to be said. Because that's not the thinking in our culture. But this is the biblical picture. Being a Christian is nothing less than having Christ dwelling in us. And Paul, to these Galatians, his concern at this point is that maybe... That life of Christ has not really been planted in their hearts like I thought it was. You see, Paul is now, like he says, he says, I'm, I'm having doubts about you. I'm wondering, did I labor in vain? Because they're happy to be religious and they're happy to tack the, the title Christian, if you will, onto their religious experience. But as far as the personal relationship, and Christ dwelling in them, they're not that concerned about that. But that's what it is to be a Christian. The Christian life is God in us. And, and Paul puts it this way to the, uh, to the Philippians. He describes the Christian life as God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I was thinking about this, um, just this whole idea of, of Christ being formed in you. And I, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking how, you know, when Christ is in you, I mean, think about that for a moment. Christ is in you. Christ is God. He's God, the son. He's the creator of all things. He's the, uh, he's the eternal God. He's the all powerful God. He's the all knowing God. Uh, you know, he, he's all of those, those attributes. He's the holy God. He's those things. Okay, think about this. If, if he is in you, something's going to happen. You think so? I mean, you know, if God is in you, there's something that's going to happen. And, you know, when Christ is in you, there is an internal impetus toward the things of God. 
that's one of the ways to know that Christ is in us. And I was thinking about how, you know, so often, and I think this is the case with Paul at this point with the Galatians, you know, they're, they're sort of like those people that we even encounter sometimes today where we're assuming that they're believers because they've, they've gone through an external process, you know, that looks like they become believers. Maybe they've uh, said a sinner's prayer. Maybe they have responded to an invitation publicly to come forward. Maybe they've gone through a baptism or something like that. So we're assuming, okay, now they're a Christian, but then we're finding they don't have any interest in reading the Bible. They don't have any interest in going to church or you know, discovering what it is to be part of uh, the family of God. They don't have any interest in really seeing their lives changed uh, in the direction of holiness. And, and we keep trying to sort of drag them into this. Like, hey, come on, I'll meet you at church. I'll take you out for breakfast afterwards. I'll, you know, we got all this bribery going on. We're trying to get them, you know, and they're not responding. Why? Well, probably because Christ isn't in them. You see, because when Christ is in you, there is an internal impetus toward the things of the Spirit. In some ways, when Christ comes into you, it's almost like at that point, you sort of go into um, autopilot, in, in a sense. I was thinking about this, where, you know, when Christ really comes into us, he, he starts to propel us forward in the things of the Spirit. Now, of course, we have to cooperate and there are times when we, we have to exercise the certain disciplines and so forth. That's, that's all a reality. But there is, this, there is this propelling that takes place. I was talking to Cheryl about this and was just saying, you know, I just thinking back on my own conversion. You know, when I came to, to faith in Jesus, nobody had to tell me, you need to read the Bible. Nobody had to tell me you should go to church. Nobody had to tell me to stop doing the things that I was previously doing. And those things were just intuitive. They, I, they were just there. And that's the evidence that Christ is being formed in us. In Hebrews, the, the final chapter, the author puts it like this. He says, may God make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. See, it's the same idea. God is going to work out his will. He's going to work out what is well-pleasing in his sight. How is he doing that? Through Jesus Christ who dwells in us. So this is Paul's great desire for the Galatians, and it's his great concern at this point that maybe that, that hasn't really happened yet. Maybe they have come uh, right to the, to the border of that, and they've, you know, they seemingly embraced it, but now that they're not moving forward in it, Paul says, I'm, I'm at this place where I'm laboring again. I am laboring in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Laboring in birth. So let's look at just that whole picture of what Paul is talking about there. He says that he's laboring for them. And the word there is a word that he commonly uses. 
And it's a word that speaks of intense labor. And the, the context makes that clear, right? Because he, he uses the analogy of, of birth. And I'm not about to say anything else about that because I've never done that, but I have seen my wife do that four times. And so I know that's, that's as intense as, <laughs> that's labor. It doesn't get any more intense than that. So Paul's talking about a, a, obviously a real intensity in his labor for them. But I, I want to look at five things that Paul does here when he, as he's laboring for them. And the, these five things are things that I think we can learn from as well. Because undoubtedly there are people in our lives or there are going to be people in our lives at certain times where this is going to be the case with them. We're, we're going to recognize that, you know, Christ is not formed in them yet. And, and we're going to have to labor for them. So the first thing that I want you to notice is that Paul continued in his laboring, he continued to love them. He continued to love them. Now, we oftentimes can just so easily write people off, especially when they don't um, come along the way we think they should or in the time frame that we think they should. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to just sort of say, okay, well, you know, that's it. And we're, we're cutting you off. And Paul didn't do that. And it's obvious he didn't do it by the fact that he wrote him this letter. This letter is an indicator of his ongoing love for them. He really cares about them. So he doesn't, you know, he, he's not now removed from the situation. He hears about what's going on in Galatia. And he just says, oh, well, you know, that's too bad. You know, they had their chance. I shared the gospel with them. If they didn't get it, then too bad for them. They, they missed their opportunity. I've got other stuff to do. Paul, Paul didn't do that. He continued to love them. And so likewise with us, we, we need to continue to love people. Sometimes I think the impression we give to people is that if they don't respond the way we want them to, then our love stops right there. And we have to be careful with that. We have to suffer long sometimes. We have to, to persevere in the love, despite the fact that they're not doing what they should be doing. But then secondly, we see that he continued to tell them the truth. He continued to tell them the truth. He kept the truth before them. And not only did he keep the truth before them, but he continued to uh, push back on the false teachers. He continued to point out that these guys were wrong and that there was a truth that the Galatians needed to grab hold of. And again, for us, we need to keep telling people the truth. Now, remember, when we tell people the truth, we are to do so in love, as Paul would say to the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. So there, there has to be that, that component. And as we saw, he continued to love them. So he's telling them the truth. But in their mind, he doesn't love them because he's telling them the truth. They become enemies because he's telling them the truth. And sometimes that's the way it sort of works out. Uh, you know, today in our 
post-truth culture, who would have ever imagined that we would be living in post-truth now? You know, post-truth is, is a thing. And there's all kinds of talk about it now that, you know, truth is not objective in people's minds these days. It's just whatever you want it to be. Whatever you feel like is true, that is what's true. End of discussion. So we have to continue to tell people the truth. And sometimes that's challenging. Sometimes that's difficult. And sometimes we, we will feel pressure to back off on the truth, to compromise the truth, to dismiss the truth so we can maintain the, the relationship or the peace or something like that. And, and, you know, there's many in the church today who are doing that very thing right now. Certain things that are being pressed in the culture as you have to accept these things, you know, some Christians and some Christian leaders are even capitulating and just saying, oh, okay, well, well, now we, we see that maybe we had this wrong and so we're gonna back off on this. We're not gonna insist on this truth, but we've got to continue to hold fast to the truth. We've got to, to stand uh, on the truth because the only way Christ is gonna be formed in somebody ultimately is if we just keep putting the truth before them. To compromise the truth and to give in to their uh, embracing of a, of a non-truth is not gonna do anything beneficial for them. So for their own benefit, even though they don't see it as a benefit, we have to stand firm on the truth. We have to maintain the truth. I was watching a video uh, yesterday that um, uh, somebody sent me, and I, I think, well, it, it was uh, an interview with um, Pierce Morgan. He was interviewing Rick Warren, and in the interview, he was talking to Rick, and it was obvious that, that Pierce respected Rick, and, and yet he was, you know, like he's always doing, Pierce Morgan, He's always pushing the homosexual issue, the gay marriage issue. And, and he's, he's saying to Rick, and I, I've seen him be really rude at times, but he was actually um, being gracious, and, but, but just insistent, you know, like, hey, look, you know, there, there's a point where you guys are just gonna have to admit you're wrong about this. And, you know, so Rick was giving some really good answers, but then, he, but then Pierce just asked him this question. He said, he said, is, do you see a time coming when you and others like you, and he referred to, he says, you know, I've, I've been to your library. I know you've got a library full of books by scholars. And, you know, uh, but, but, you know, people are changing their mind. They're realizing that they had things wrong. So he said, do you see a time when yourself and others in the church are going to recognize that we've been wrong about this issue and you're going to finally embrace homosexuality? You're going to embrace gay marriage. You know, do you see that coming? And Rick's answer was so amazingly brilliant and bold. He just looked at me and said, that's not coming. I never see that coming because, this is what he said, because I'm more concerned about what God thinks of me than what you think of me or what this crowd thinks of me or what the rest of the world thinks of me. And that, 
It's a good example of speaking the truth in, in love. But that's the kind of thing we have to do. And 10 years ago, none of us knew that it was going to be as intense as it is in the culture today when it comes to speaking the truth. People don't want the truth. They want you to shut up. And people who are even claiming to be Christians don't want you to tell the truth about some of these things. They want to go on like the Galatians, and they're happy to have Jesus under their own terms. And we can't allow for that. We have to insist upon the truth. So we have to keep speaking the truth. We have to tell them the truth. But again, we have to do it winsomely. We have to do it wisely. We have to do it graciously. We have to do it lovingly, but we have to speak the truth. Then Paul, thirdly, he continued to explain the gospel to them. Paul continued to explain the gospel to them. He's like, okay, let's go over this again. And that's what Galatians is about. The, 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 you know, thus far in our study, that's what he's been doing, right? He's just been rehearsing the gospel to them over and over again. And this is also something that we need to do today. We need to just keep getting the gospel to people. We need to keep explaining the gospel to people. We need to keep telling them what the gospel really is versus what it isn't. We have to have a good, consistent explanation of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he died in our place so that we could be justified, so that we could be forgiven, so that upon receiving him, we would find full acceptance with God, that I don't need to add uh, any additional thing to that. So we need to just keep getting the gospel out. And for those like the Galatians, again, those who have come to a point, but yet obviously Christ has not been formed in them yet. We have to help them to understand the gospel. We have to keep going back over and over again. Man's default position is always to go back to some sort of works righteousness. And we have to keep pressing against that. No, that's not how it happens. It takes place through your full embrace of Christ. So Paul did that. He continued to explain the gospel to them. And then, although the text doesn't tell us this specifically, I, I am absolutely certain that Paul continued to pray for them. No question about that. Paul, the word labor that he uses here, he uses this word a number of times in his letters, and he uses it in connection with prayer. So it's speaking of laboring in prayer, just like a woman is laboring in, in birth. So Paul's obviously speaking of... Uh, of a real intensity and a passion in prayer. And this is one of the ways that we labor for other people as well. You know, we labor in prayer for them. And, and you know this, I know this, we all have this experience, I'm sure, that you know, there are people that you love, people that you are concerned about, people that might even you know, refer to themselves as Christians, but you know the reality is there's no manifestation of Christ being formed in their life. And you also know that they don't want you to say anything to them. They, they're not open to conversation. And, you know, I think we all probably know people where you've come to that place. What do you do then? You pray for them. 
They can't stop you from doing that. And you don't even have to tell them you're praying for them. You know, because when you tell them, they're like, don't pray for me. I hate that. I don't need you to pray for me. So don't even tell them. It's okay. God knows you're praying for them. And you know, I have found that God is so much better at convicting people than I am. He's really good at this. You know, he really knows what to do. He really knows where to nail them and how to do it. And I have had so many situations where I have, uh, you know, I, I couldn't even sense at all that there was anything going on in a person's heart regarding conviction from their outward behavior. Didn't, didn't seem like they were convicted about anything. But the truth of the matter is, through prayer, God was dealing with them. God was convicting them. And then when they you know, finally come around and Christ is formed in them, they tell the story about, wow, man, let me tell you how convicted I was back in those days. So we labor in prayer. And then fifthly and finally, we need to continue to hope for the best. And this is more important than you might think by just hearing it. But listen to what I mean. We need to hope for the best like Paul did. Again, Paul, he continues in love. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't just dismiss it as, well, you know, I tried, I failed. They didn't get it. They've rejected Christ. I'm moving on. No, Paul continued to hope for the best. How do we know that? We know that because of the letter itself. And we know that even though he has doubts about where they genuinely are and he's concerned that Christ is informed in them, he also continues to speak to them as though you, they are believers and challenge them and put those truths forth to them. And so what you see in the letter itself is you see that Paul continued to hold out hope for the best. He was believing that God was going to bring to fruition that, that work that he had started there. And this is something that I think we need to think about. Because I think sometimes we, we um, cannot be hopeful. Sometimes we just think that, well, the, you know, just what it is right now is what it's always going to be. And we just, just kind of give up hope and we write people off. And in some ways, I think we've sort of been conditioned toward that been conditioned toward thinking that unless somebody responds immediately to my gospel presentation, then that's, um, well, that was the one opportunity, you know, and if they didn't respond, then, well, that's it. They rejected Christ, and so now we're done, and that there's no more hope, and some people, whether they consciously think like that or not, they behave like they think like that. Because the moment a person doesn't give the, the response that they're looking for, there's that tendency to just, you know, sort of put them in the category of hopeless. And Paul doesn't do that, and we should not do that either. But I think it's the mistaken idea that all of our efforts to lead people to Jesus, unless they result in us actually, you know, saying a prayer with them or something like that, then somehow we failed in our task. That's not true. Because there's a process. And if we understand that we are part of a process, it, that becomes so helpful. It becomes helpful in, I think, the way we approach people. If I understand that I am part of a process and that the, the eternal destiny of this person is not weighing upon me right this moment. 
You know, if I go into a, a conversation with a person thinking that, that is such a huge burden. And I start, because I'm under just an intense burden, I just get weird really quick. I can't be a normal person, because after all, I gotta save this person right now. And so I'm just like, okay, forget this small talk about normal stuff, we gotta get to the point. And, and you know, and then when you get like that, then the person is automatically on the like, hey, slow down, you know, back up. And you know, I've actually had many times where I've shared the gospel with people and brought them to the point where I think they pretty well understood, but then at the same time said, look, I will pray with you right now if you would like to, but I'm not gonna force you to do this. I'm not gonna pressure you to do this. Because if I pressure you to do it, somebody else is gonna pressure you to retract it. I want you to be at that place where you want to do this. It's, it's gotta be your decision. So again, hoping is recognizing that God is working through a process here and realizing that, you know, we are part of the process. Because I think most of the time we just think of the, the ultimate in the harvesting part of it. But don't forget, the seed has to be planted before it can ever be harvested. It has to be cultivated before it can ever be harvested. And God uses us in that process. Some are planting the seed. That's all they're doing. They're, they're just planting it. The seed is planted. And others are coming along and they're, they're watering what somebody else planted. And then occasionally somebody gets the blessing of, of being able to harvest what somebody else has done. But you see, the hopeful mentality is to know that God's working through a process and that he's faithful and as he's planted the, the seed in people's lives, that he's going to, he's going to bring that about. And, and we can have that confidence that he's doing that. You know, in my trip home recently from my time in Europe, I, I sat next to a guy on the flight on the way home and, you know, we finally got into a conversation. He, was, he lived in London, so we had some common conversation about that, and I noticed his accent and said, well, you know, where are you from? He wasn't English, um, and he happened to be an Israeli, and that opened up a whole other opportunity for conversation because I love London and I love Israel, and so we talked about Israel. He lived outside of Jerusalem, and, you know, we talked about that, and then, I mean, when you're talking about Israel, how do you not talk about the Bible? And when you're talking about the Bible in Israel, how do you not talk about prophecy? And, you know, so one thing led to another, and I got to just kind of encourage him toward looking at his own Bible, because he claimed to be a, a, a believing Jew who was observant and was able to point him to different prophecies and things that kind of show why the world is the way it is today. And, you know, I walked away from that I didn't lead him to Christ. And years ago, I probably would have walked away from that feeling like, what a lousy witness I am. What a big loser. What a big failure. You know, I had this guy next to me for 10 hours and I didn't lead him to Christ, man. I'm just, I'm hopeless. <laughs> but I actually walked away going, thank you, Lord, that I got to plant the seed 
of your word. And I know that you set me next to this guy to do that. And so I just trust in you. You're going to bring somebody along to water that. So again, as we labor, we must labor with hope, hoping for the best, giving God time to work in people's lives. And I think sometimes, again, it's just a, a misunderstanding of the grace of God and the patience of God and all of those things. You know, you come up to somebody, you've never seen them in your life. You give them a track. You tell them, hey, read this right now. Pray this prayer right now. If you don't, you might get in a car wreck and you're going to die today and you're going to go to hell forever. And, you know, and most people are like, what? Who? What? You know, most people are like that. And now I'm not saying that God has never used that to save somebody. I'm sure he has. I'm sure there's a testimony where somebody would say, yeah, some guy gave me a track, told me I was going to hell if I didn't pray that prayer right there, and I did, and so now I'm saved. And Okay, good. But you know, I would say that's more the exception than the rule. And we don't make the exception the rule. The rule is one plants, one waters, God makes it grow. That's what the Bible says. And so that's what Paul demonstrated toward the Galatians. He, continue, he labored for them, but we see his labor was he continued to love them. He continued to speak the truth to them. He continued to explain the gospel to them. He undoubtedly continued to pray for them, and he continued to hope for the best, that God was going to bring them around, and Christ would be formed in them. And then, of course, that is what happens through simple faith alone. And that's what Paul was wanting to get them back to because they had added, remember, their problem was they were adding to the gospel. We need more than the gospel. We need these works and things. No, you need to just get back to that simple trust in Christ. And as you trust him simply as the one who died and rose again for your sin, as you trust him he will come into your life. He will be formed in you and he will work out his good will and purpose through your life. So Lord, help us to, Lord, just more clearly understand your ways, your way of working. And we thank you for Paul's example. We thank you, Lord, for the amazing grace that he showed through you undoubtedly working in his heart toward the Galatians. And Lord, help us. We all probably know people that we look at them and we just don't know if Christ has formed in them yet. And Lord, how do we help in that coming to fruition? Lord, thank you for these ways that you've shown us here today. And Lord, help us personally as well to not drift into that tendency that we all have to uh, add some work to our simple trust in you. Help us, Lord, to know that it's just Christ in us is the hope of glory, and it's God working in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. And Lord, that you are making us complete in every good work to do your will through Christ who is in us. So work in our hearts, we pray, Jesus, in your name, amen. Let's stand together.